0: hello this is noah and i have another episode of one thing led to another for you i wasn't lying when i said i had a bunch of authors on deck to uh join the podcast so expect these to come out more frequently but i am extremely excited for this episode because i'm interviewing maureen mcquery and I have admitted it on the podcast before that I have a tendency to reach out to the authors of books that I love, which is predominantly science fiction and fantasy. And while Maureen does write in science fiction and fantasy, she is also a uh, young adult and children's writer, children's novelist, I should say. Um, So she can offer that perspective, a perspective that we haven't necessarily gotten on the show before. And she's also... uh, a she works with teachers as well to tailor workshops for to meet specific writing goals for students. Um, so she's extremely good at the explanation of the writing process, the explanation of the storytelling techniques and processes. And that's the whole point of this podcast. So super great to have her on the show. Uh, personal notes don't really have much for you. I ask that you hop on out to my website at ntfinco.com or noafenko.net, whichever you prefer, and uh, peruse around there a little bit, read some of my past work and that sort of thing. That would mean the world to me. Um, I would be doing myself a huge disservice if I didn't, you know, give a shameless plug for my other podcast, which is the Mouse in the House podcast. It is not a podcast about Disney or in-home extermination. Uh, It's about sports. It's a reference to the basketball uh, phrase, the mouse in the house. That doesn't matter. And it also doesn't really matter that I specify it's sports because myself and my two co-hosts, Garrison and Sam, don't really talk about sports a whole lot. It's more of us just talking about what's going on. So if you want to laugh, head out there. If you want to hear more of this voice, which I would be surprised if you did, uh, you can head out there as well. Um, but moving on, this is the episode with Maureen McQueary. I would like to thank you again so much for listening. This is one of my favorite things that I do. One of my favorite hobbies that I enjoy and watching the listener count increase and watching my estimated audience size increase has been uh really amazing, really special And I ask that you share this podcast with your friends on social media, um, that sort of thing. But without further ado, this is Maureen McQuarrie for her interview on One Thing Led to Another. Thank you.
1: My name's Maureen McQuarrie and I'm a novelist I had uh, I have four novels out my fourth novel uh, between before and after just came out this last February and they all fit into the young adult and middle grade space before that I was a teacher for uh, about 18 years teaching everything from middle school through college Um, and I'm also a poet uh, published in literary journals.
0: Excellent, thank you. So I suppose my first question would be then, um, I can assume the answer to this, but what gave you the interest in young adult and middle grade literature and to write that level?
1: Well, partly because I was teaching that level at the time, but it. I think it's more than that. Um, it's an interesting age group because you think about um, young adult novels often being coming-of-age stories. They're the time in life when we're asking a lot of big questions. And I think this happens again uh, later in life. In fact, I think we, we have a, a, almost a second coming-of-age period. But that time period in a person's life really interests me.
0: So then where did the decision come from to write in fantasy?
1: Well, um, they're not all fantasy. My first, the first book, The Peculiars, is alternate history, a little bit of steampunk, and mm-hmm. definitely fantasy. And then the middle grade um, series that followed that duology is Celtic mythology. Um, but the book that just came out is really historical fiction. But it does have a retelling of Hansel and Gretel in between the chapters. So there's still a little bit of a fairy tale myth link. Um, I grew up loving those kinds of books, anything that had to do with fantasy, fairy tales. Um, And I do think that fairy tales um, tell us some archetypal truths about our lives. So I do find that I've got a link to that in all of my writing. Mm -hmm.
0: So then could you take me through sort of the life cycle of The Peculiars since that was your first book? How did the initial idea come for that book? And then could you take me through to when it actually became published?
1: Sure. Um, It's interesting because it's not the first manuscript I wrote. And in fact, the middle grade series after The Peculiars was written before The Peculiars. Um, But it's definitely the first one that was published. Uh, it started most of my books start in two ways. One with questions that I'm struggling with myself and want to find out answers to. I find if I if I write a story and I think I know the answer to the questions, um, it's not an engaging story. But if I write a story from a place of questioning and curiosity then the story is much more authentic because I'm writing to find out the answers to the story myself. So with Peculiars, I was thinking about, uh, one of the questions was, do we become who our parents are? Um, whether for good or for, or for ill. And in the Peculiars, uh, Lena has a, a parent who's very difficult um, that abandoned her years ago. And she, is worried that some of the same characteristics that are in her father are going to show up in herself. Um, But my other question was, how do we treat people who are different? How does society respond to people like Lena, the main character who has these exceptionally long uh, hands and feet? And that's based on—that's kind of a nod to George MacDonald's description of goblins a little bit of a a nod to that there. So those were the questions I was thinking about as I started writing the story. But I also had this picture of a girl on a steam train with these exceptionally long hands. (laughs) When when I thought of this character on the steam train, that gave me a time period. Um, So it's set in 1888, and there's a lot of the real 1888 in the story. But it's an alternate 1888, so it's as if we uh, chose from the Industrial Revolution just to pursue steam power, and that's where the steampunk element comes in there, and there are some kind of futuristic devices that are based on steam. that didn't really exist in 1888.
0: So then how long after the publication or the writing of The Peculiars did you move on to the Time Out of Time series?
1: Well, the the three books, uh Peculiars and the time out of time series sold in a three book deal uh to abrams
0: mm-hmm.
1: which was interesting the the time out of time series was written first and it, they were written while i was still teaching full-time and i can see a, a lot of my students uh in the in that series they came a year a year after the Peculiars, but They all sold at the same time. And and it's interesting, the publisher made a decision to to release Peculiars first just because of marketing and thinking it would be a good fit in the market at that time period. And then the other two followed up each of them a year after.
0: Great. So then what were sort of the lessons learned between the two books? What adjustments did you make after writing the first and moving on to the second?
1: Well, I learned how to work, how to do revision with an editor, which mm. was which was something that I hadn't had the experience of doing before. Um, that was helpful and challenging, and really a wonderful experience. I got to work with um, Howard Reeves, who had been an um, an editor for a long time at A Ab- at Abrams. He was a vice president there, and his editorial process was just to ask questions rather than make suggestions. But there are always questions that led me to go deeper into the story. So that was that was a learning curve for me. The other thing that was a huge learning curve was the business of writing, the marketing end, all of the things that writers have to do uh, to let people discover their work.
0: So then when it comes to the series, How did you, and this is a question I usually have when it comes to writers of a series, how did you ensure that the tension was building, not just in each individual book, but throughout the series?
1: Mm, That's a really good question. It was written actually as a three book series. And um, Abram suggested that I do it as two books. So I had to do some restructuring, Mm -hmm. make it work that way. And one of the things that I had to think about is there's a story arc for each book, but then there's an overall story arc for the series. And so you have to balance those two things. Um, And one of the things that I like to do is plant things in the first book that you might not understand or might not be revealed until the second book. So that helps build tension um and keeps the reader engaged as they're trying to find that out and then it's kind of satisfying of course once you find that in the second book and you say wait i understand that links back to what was in the first book and kind of um part of it too is thinking about your character characters their arcs and how they change and of course they age in the book middle school through high school so what are some of the changes that they're going through personally, in the B story, as well as in the main plot of
0: the book. So during the drafting and revision of these books, did you ever get the books in front of children of that age group to serve as beta readers?
1: I did. And it was very fun um, for the Time Out of Time series. I started that. My son was, um, probably late middle school, early high school, and we were the house where the kids tended to hang out, um, <laughs> after school, and he would have LAN parties in the basement. Oh the
0: my, that brings me would... back.
1: <laughs> That's it. Right, yeah, yeah. All the computers would be hooked up, and so the, some of his friends were my first readers, and in fact, I dedicated the books to the boys from the basement
0: that's amazing and,
1: yeah and their feedback was really uh helpful for me in writing the book and in the peculiars um my kids were a little bit older um i was writing i was teaching very part-time then and writing more and i still was able to find some some young beta readers to give me feedback on that
0: were there any like reoccurring themes or things that the beta readers would focus on versus say what your editor would focus on or the publisher
1: Oh, that's interesting, too. Um, Usually, with beta readers, I will give them some questions to help them know how to respond. What I'll do is have them read the book first, and then give me initial response, and then look at some of the questions that I have for them. And most of their responses, well, I asked very specifically questions about, am I portraying this age correctly, (laughs) kinds of things. Um, I wanted to know about that, but I also wanted to know if they were engaged and if it was moving quickly enough for them. Um, and so they would respond to a lot, those types of things. Um, and that's not too different than the kind of editorial comments I would get, um, that had to do with pacing, um, looking for consistency with characters throughout the story, especially when you have a series, um, consistency and growth in the characters.
0: Would you notice that the kids were almost more, would notice those inconsistencies more? Or were there things that, like, the, car- the kids, like, just didn't care about if they weren't consistent?
1: Um, no, I think they would notice it more. And Interesting. It. So that was really helpful. Yeah, they would notice different kinds of inconsistencies, and they'd be able to say, well, in middle school, I probably wouldn't have thought about that, or I would have said that differently, something like that.
0: That's very interesting. Yeah, because I'm always interested in, like, if there's a big disconnect between the young adult industry and then the actual readers. Uh, Do you notice anything like that? Do you notice, like, counterintuitive advice given to you? Hmm.
1: I don't think the advice has been counterintuitive. I noticed it it particularly in my book that just came out, um, Between Before and After. Now, (laughs) it's historical, not fantasy, and it's a mother-daughter Two generation story set in 1918 New York and 1955 California and the big question was what space does this land in is this gonna land in the young adult space because the story is told through uh, the voice of two 14 year old girls one in each time period but you also see the story the mother is the 14 year old from 1919 um, 19 is the mother in 1955, and so you also see it through her viewpoint as an adult. And so the big question was, does it fall into the adult literary, literary space, or does it fall into the young adult space? And that's a that's a very hard question because when you have a young protagonist, teen protagonist, um, marketing tends to want you to fit your books into that space. However, there are a number of books in the literary world that are um, narrated by younger narrators as well. And so this became a really, this became a big question. And it it took a while for that book to find a home and it came out as young adult, but I'm finding that most of the readers who really love the book are adult women. And so. So it's not always cut and dried about where, I guess, where a book fits um, and the advice that you get about that, if it should be young adult or whether it should be adult. And of course, we already know that adults read um, a good percentage of the young adult literature that's out there. It crosses over into the adult market.
0: So then where did that decision to have a retelling of Hansel and Gretel in between chapters come from?
1: Mm. Well, I think fairy tales, as I mentioned, tell a lot of archetypal truths. Um, And when I was writing the book, I was writing the two time periods, and the story of Hansel and Gretel just kept inserting itself in my mind. And so I had to, the story wanted to be there, and I had to figure out why. What was the link? And Hansel and Gretel is the archetypal story of kids who are abandoned in the dark woods and we all go through the dark woods in life, but we often forget the end. They survive and eventually against all odds find home. Hmm. So it's a story of redemption, but it's also, it's a story of struggle and abandonment as well. Um, And it tied in with the theme of my other story, which was really a story of family secrets and children who are struggling to save their families and who, in the end, um, find redemption in a way they never expected. So hopefully what Hansel and Gretel does is it adds an extra layer of depth to the themes in the story.
0: Very, very cool. So as you were going along writing and after having a lengthy career teaching and uh, and at all levels, While you were writing, was there ever a time when you realized that maybe a lesson you taught in regards to writing wasn't necessarily too true or anything of that sort?
1: Well, I think I would be a much better uh, writing teacher now uh, (laughs) than I first started out. Because once you grapple with the process yourself, and that's why I'm always a fan of having teachers write along with their students, you know, you can't teach writing unless you've grappled with all of the things that a writer has to grapple with. Um, You can teach literature, but teaching writing, um, writing a process, it's a craft, um, and it's a skill that you're always improving and hopefully improving and, and learning more about. And so now that I've spent hours and hours of course writing, I think I would have even more to say in terms of, of what I offer to students. You can, a lot of times in school, um, when students have writing assignments, they might come from a, from a book, um, and they'll be, I guess I want to say they're more formulaic than what the actual writing, pro- the actual writing process is messy. hmm and it, much of it happens in revision. And that's one thing we do get in the schools. We tell the kids that they have to revise and edit, and they never believe it, and they never want to do it. But the truth is, much of writing happens in revision. That's where you really drill down to the heart of the story.
0: So going off of that idea of, of, of teaching writing, the the. Crux of this podcast is what makes a good story. So, from your perspective as a writer and as a teacher, what's something you can tell somebody that will make them a better storyteller, whether that's writing or just at the dinner table or out with their friends?
1: Okay, well, one thing that I have become aware of recently is that every story at its heart is a survival story. (laughs) And here's what I mean the stakes for the character have to be death. And it doesn't have to be a physical death that I'm talking about. It might be the death of a dream, it might be, um, it could be a physical death, it could be uh, the death of an identity, but it has to matter that much to the character so that it matters to the reader. That's why we keep turning the pages. We want to see how they're going to survive this thing that matters so much to them and if the stakes aren't that high the reader isn't as engaged so they it has to feel to the to the protagonist that if they don't accomplish this goal if they um lose this opportunity that it will feel like a death to them
0: so that in, in that vein is there Is there a uniqueness to the stories that children and young adults gravitate towards rather than adults or other readers or listeners?
1: Hmm. Well, it's interesting because so many adults are reading in the YA space, and I think it's because something that you see in in YA and middle grade, that often the pacing is quicker, but you also see that it's very... um, often very first person or close third person. It's very involved um, closely with what the character is experiencing and the pacing is fast. Um, And the questions that are going on are the questions that we ask when we are um, trying to figure out the world and what it means and our place in the world.
0: So for my final question for you today, is I've gotten some notes from some of my listeners that some of them are experiencing the wonderful world of writer's block. So (laughs) if you could say something to someone who might be listening, who's in the middle of their first draft of their manuscript for a YA novel, and they're stuck, what's one thing you could say to them that helped you when you got stuck, which I assumed happened plenty of times?
1: Plenty of times, yes. So a couple of things my first answer for when you are in the moment stuck is step away from your computer and do something physical. And there's actually some research that supports this, that riding a bike, jogging, climbing a mountain, hiking, doing something physical actually tends to, to um, not only distract you, but, uh, it increases the creativity flow that's going on. And so a lot of times when I get stuck, in the moment, that's the thing I'll do. The other thing um, that's a longer part of the process is have a critique group. And I can't stress that enough. Um, we all are too close to our work to see it clearly. And when we get stuck, it's a, a lot of times we are going in the same path. Um, we're not thinking sideways. We're not thinking as creatively as we can. And so a critique group coming alongside and asking us Questions Rather than giving us answers or telling us what to do is really essential. It comes back to curiosity. Um, the more curious you are and the more questions you ask, um, the more it will help you become unstuck.